Welcome to Reinventing Education, a podcast for teachers, parents, and students who imagine a more compelling vision of what education could be. Perspectives, practices, and new ideas. On this episode, a summary of the four values that are impacting and calling the shots in education. I'm Rob McLeod. So what's wrong with school? I'm sure you have answers. You and I, we'd likely identify a lot of the same concerns. I mean, the world is changing and schools aren't meeting today's challenges. Some students are being left behind. The dropout rate is way too high. Kids aren't ready for work, or often even the next stage of school. Certain professions are lacking qualified graduates, while other professions are completely overflooded, And we are falling behind other countries in our test scores. But creating a list of concerns isn't our problem. Agreeing on solutions is the reason we don't get very far. Let's say we pick one issue. As soon as we try to answer how to solve it, the ship hits the flan. We have different solutions, competing solutions, different beliefs about how to fix it. Why do we tend to agree on the problems but fight over the solutions? There are different values that influence what education looks like. Different values that have very different beliefs about what school should look like. The first seven episodes of the Reinventing Education podcast identified these values. We are attempting to reframe our discussions about education to make them more useful. We are offering an updated narrative, one that we hope is more functional. This is a narrative about where education has come from, where it is now, and where it might go. A narrative about the values, hoping that this can serve as a map. A map of values that make orientation and movement forward possible. I mean, if life's too short for bad coffee, it's definitely too short for subpar education. At the risk of being a tease, we'll get to the values in just a moment. But first, we need to start from square one. Ask yourself... What is a school education for? What is the purpose of a school education? I mean, seriously, we invest trillions in education worldwide. Why bother? What purpose does it serve? What is a school education for? I'll give you a minute, or pause the podcast, and of course, please come back. No matter what you said... I'll bet your answers fall into one of the following three categories. Occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, or self-development. Our governments provide school education for those three reasons. Occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. What do we mean by occupational preparation? Well, basically skill development and filtering. Skill development. You need to understand some information and demonstrate proficiency in skills for a specific career for when you leave school. And filtering, well, school helps filter the population toward and away from certain school or work opportunities. Your performance in school filters you. Your performance determines what opportunities are available to you and which are denied. This filter sorts you for what next steps of school are available to you and which types of employment are available. For example, you do well in high school, you get to choose some exclusive next steps for school or work. 
If you don't do so well in high school, well, there's a different set of next steps that are available to you for school or work. Secondly, what do we mean by the cultivation of citizenship? Well, to quote Seth Godin, people like us do things like this. The social influence and cultural molding that school provides differs from region to region. Conduct and patterns of relating with others are influenced by the surrounding culture. School norms mirror social norms. School in Osaka or California or Berlin or Kampala will have very different cultural flavors, even though the content being taught is very similar. School norms will reflect the region's social norms. People like us do things like this. And what does self-development in schools look like? Self-development is often given the least focus here. Sure, you can be ready for work in society, but can you handle your life? Self-development in school is often not taught explicitly. More often, school implicitly helps you discover your strengths and your weaknesses, uncover interests, and possibly help you become clear on goals for what you want to do with your life. So what is the purpose of school education? Governments provide school education for the following three reasons. Occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development. As I alluded to, rarely are these three given equal weight. One of the three is usually privileged over the others. Which one is the favorite where you are? Occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, or self-development? Oh, and keep in mind, a school or a school system might not do any of these three very effectively. Effectiveness, well, that's a whole other story for a whole other series of podcasts. But more often than not, it's kind of like Goldilocks. One of the three is done really well, another okay, and the third is carried out atrociously. And again, that's a whole other set of episodes. How do we best prepare students for the workforce, society, and their lives? So it sounds straightforward enough. Get people ready for work, get people ready to be part of our citizenry, and get people to know themselves a little better. Okay, but how? Your answer to how to go about doing these reveals your values. You've shown us your cards. Values inform our ideas about how things should be done. We define values as a judgment of what is important in life. See, discussions about education can get tense quickly. It's like discussing religion or politics, because we're actually discussing how people should live their lives. Not just ourselves, but others too. Our ideas about how to live our lives are pretty personal and fundamental to how we are as a person. So right now, we see four values at play in education. Four different ideas about how to prepare kids for work, society, and their own lives. How should a kid in our society spend 10 or more years while in school? How should our country's youth spend their childhood and adolescence? What's interesting is if you look back historically, we actually had some consensus on this, at least at first. But slowly, over time, we came up with different answers. Each new answer informed what school looked like. And each new answer tends to fight with the values that are already in existence. Four values at play, each has utility, each is responding to some aspect of our culture and world, each has strengths, each has shortcomings. (laughs) 
Okay, enough already. What are the four values in education? Okay, so the four values are self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. Self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development. Each value has arisen historically in response to social, economic, and cultural change in the world. First came self-discipline in response to the end of feudalism and the emerging industrial economy and military workforce. Next came ambition, in response to the transition to a more free market capitalism. Next came sensitivity, in response to democratic socialist-leaning capitalism. And we are now seeing development in response to the VUCA state of our economic systems. Each value solves some of the previous value's shortcomings, each value emerged as a new response to change. Let's take a quick look at each of them, starting with self-discipline. In a self-discipline-influenced school, the belief is that students must value and demonstrate self-discipline in order to demonstrate the compliance and obedience to authority required in the strong authority pyramid of the industrial economy and society leaving the influence of feudalism and military life. Yeah, I know there's a lot packed into these. We will unpack them later. Next up, the ambition value believes that students must value and demonstrate ambition in order to demonstrate their desire for achievement and strategizing, which is required in the social ladder and game of the free market capitalism. Next up, sensitivity. Within the sensitivity system, students must value and demonstrate sensitivity in order to show the inclusion and empathy required in the shared social support of a more socialist-leaning capitalist market. And finally, development. Development believes that students must value and demonstrate development in order to show the transformation and adaptation required in the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity of our rapidly changing world, a world with multiple volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous economies happening simultaneously. So if you're a fan of integral theory, spiral dynamics, or Frederick Laloux's, wow, it's a tongue twister, or Frederick Laloux's book, Reinventing Organizations, these values might sound familiar. If the names I've just mentioned to you aren't familiar or known to you, no worries, However, the next 20 seconds will likely sound like a rainbow-tinged word salad. Okay, but if you're into the lingo, here we go. The self-discipline value corresponds with the blue or amber stage of conformist organizations. Ambition corresponds to the orange stage of achiever organizations. Sensitivity corresponds with the green or pluralistic organizations. And development corresponds with the yellow or teal of evolutionary organizations. Okay, enough jargon. Think of these four values like four different sports. But imagine these four sports having to share the same field. Each sport has its own agenda, intentions, and rules. Each has a very different idea about what winning looks like. I mean, winning in golf is very different compared to winning in football. Now, each sport is happening simultaneously at the same time on the same field. We call this cacophony of action education. Each sport, getting in the way of the others, 
preventing everyone from accomplishing what they're trying to do. Golfer is trying to putt while in the way of a football player running down the field. Second baseman trying to catch and knocking into a goalie. At times, it's a mess. Yes, this is education. Four very different values jostling for control of the space to do what they think should be done to prepare people for the world as they see it. So, how do we improve education? Well, improvements in one sport won't be acknowledged, appreciated, or even accepted from the perspective of players in different games. Until we highlight these different values and the different games they're engaged in, we can't really move forward. We'll just keep getting in each other's way. So let's switch analogies from sports to booze. Right now, education is a cocktail. It's four different unique flavors mixed together. Sure, it looks like one unified liquid sitting there in the glass, so we call it education. Just like we call a mojito a mojito, and not a white rum, club soda, lime juice, sugar, and mint. This mix in education has arisen over time. We didn't notice that we were mixing different ingredients as we went along. So here's our challenge on the podcast: let's separate each value from the mix that we call education. Let's define each of these four values and their influence. Let Let's have each value's flavor become apparent to us, and become aware of what it's bringing to our current cocktail. You'll notice that each of these values doesn't have a clear starting and endpoint. We are giving rough starting dates for each, but each continues to influence education up to today in 2018. Each value is still evolving, still developing, and still refining itself. So let's look at each value one at a time. And to do this, we'll travel back to where compulsory state-sponsored school education began, to the DeLorean, Marty. What does the self-discipline value look like in school? It's the late 1700s. Prussia decides to do something that no government in history had ever done before. Prussia decides to provide state-funded compulsory school across the nation. It was an extension of their military training. I mean, rather than begin training soldiers at age thirteen, Prussia decided to begin molding individuals at the age of five, and it worked. It worked very well, and other countries took notice. Over the next hundred years, the Prussian model of school spread to every country in the world. As countries adopted this approach, they copied the Prussian structure, a version of school informed. By the self-discipline value, some additional context here: feudalism was on its way out. Military and industrial revolution-inspired economies were on the way in. It was acceptable for children to work in factories up to fourteen hours a day, six days a week. Social mobility wasn't really a thing. The role and social class you were born into was pretty much where you'd stay. You likely fulfilled the same role your parents did. As did their parents before them. There were determined roles for people in society, and it was expected that you would hold your role, fulfill it, and uphold its duties. So, as Prussia and other countries developed the first iteration of national school education in this context, what did it look like? Well, it almost seems cartoonish now, but the teacher 
was an authority figure. The first teachers were often former soldiers or military officials. Their main role was to be a disciplinarian, and physical discipline, well, that was fair game. There were often straps, canes, and dunce caps on display, serving as reminders of the punishment that awaited misbehavior, a lack of knowledge, or just making mistakes. And when punishment took place, it would often be public. All students were well aware of the consequences and shame associated with deviating from what was expected of them. Students were to comply with and obey the teacher's authority over them. What mattered most was student conduct, not student achievement. Students needed to demonstrate the ability to comply and conform. And being there, well, that was considered enough. Academic progress was not really tracked, but your attendance was. And often, the number of punishments or detentions you received were documented as well. Report cards, as we know them, with your achievement, your grades in subjects, well, those weren't given out. Your attendance and appropriate participation was deemed sufficient. Student motivation was to avoid punishment. Avoid being humiliated for not keeping up with the group. Lessons, the teaching, well, it's centered around repetition, memory work, and whole class responses. I don't mean everyone talking at the same time. I mean each student having a turn to give an answer after being beckoned by the teacher and then having to wait patiently and quietly while there's responded. See, the idea was that the best thinking had already been done, and by people better than you. It was your task to memorize and respect their work. You won't be adding to the canon of cultural goods. You have a role to fulfill. You have a place in the military, or the factories when you leave here. You have a role to fulfill in the already well-established pyramid of authority. There are already a few in power who run things here, and you will work for them. The classroom setup was typically unchanging. Desks and rows of benches were typically bolted to the ground, forcing you to face the teacher and the blackboard, who stood at the front. Several grades and ages may be mixed together, with the youngest in the front of the room and the oldest at the back, girls on one side, boys on the other. School uniforms or strict dress codes were common. And pictures of authority figures, well, those were on the wall. Pictures of political leaders, religious leaders, local military or government officials. So the question comes back, how do we prepare students for the workforce and citizenry? Well, according to self-discipline, make students self-disciplined individuals who will fulfill their role and do as instructed. What does the self-discipline value look like in school? Students must value and demonstrate self-discipline in order to show the compliance and obedience to authority required in the strong authority pyramid of the industrial economy and society leaving feudalism and influenced by the military. What does the ambition value look like in school? Ambition arose as we made school a game in which you demonstrate your merit in order to access more opportunities in life. It arose with a changing world. 
See, by the late 1800s, in most countries, child labor was outlawed, or at least greatly reduced. Feudalism's influence was nearly gone as democratic elections became the standard across most countries. Elect those best suited for the job. Military and industrial markets gave way to free market capitalism. They did stick around, but of course, free market capitalism began to be the dominant force here. Entrepreneurial and corporate capitalism established the idea that the best product for the best price should do the best in the market. Social mobility was growing, and the story was that with enough ambition, you could work hard and make your place in the world. Regs to riches and the self-made person became part of our social narrative. Preparation for this workforce and society required ambition and strategy rather than just self-discipline and compliance. You want to be adding value to the groups or businesses that you're joining. Previously, if you had a position of authority, you likely acquired it due to your birthright or were able to access it due to your already established social class. You didn't necessarily have authority due to being the best suited for the job or because you had earned the public's trust. Now, we wanted a meritocracy. If we want the best to rise to the top, we needed a way to sort who was the best. By the late 1800s, report cards emerged. So did more options for college and university. School was becoming a filter for the workforce. It filtered by assessing merit. We began to track, assess, and record each student's achievement. Being there was no longer enough. Now, your performance mattered. School became a meritocracy. You needed to get good grades in each subject to prove your worth. Stronger students proved they were worth being given better opportunities. Your work, or more specifically, your marks, have authority over your fate. The ambition value made it so that your level of achievement against the one-size-fits-all set of established criteria is what school is all about. Your level of achievement against the one-size-fits-all established criteria is used to filter you for future schooling and the workforce. Your achievement determines what next steps of schooling and what kinds of jobs are available to you and which aren't. How do we prepare students for this kind of workforce and citizenry? Well, ambition says, make them ambitious individuals who will compete for opportunities in school and the workforce. Ambition. It's a bit like a carrot. See, the payoff comes later. School is a means to allow you to earn your spot in society. Ambition's story is as follows. If you do well in school, you'll do well in life. And by that we mean you have access to the most elite school programs and the best jobs, which most likely will earn you more money than other things. Do well in school, you'll do well in life. And conversely, if you don't do well in school, well, you're not going to do very well in life. A free market capitalist society rewards ambition and the desire for achievement and success. So school mirrored this. Kids and parents well, they wanted kids to get good grades. Good grades were seen as something worth pursuing. Good grades became an unquestioned good in and of themselves. 
Within the ambition value, the idea is that with strategy, some ambition, some results, and some good luck, you can move up the social ladder. In theory, the best and the brightest have the opportunity to shine and rise to their potential and rightful places of power. But the converse could also be true too. Without good grades, success, and demonstrating your merit, you may slip down the social ladder. See, your grades are the ticket. It's assumed that good grades are a reflection that your work is of good quality, according to our standards. You demonstrated the degree to which you understood what we wanted you to learn. We abstracted the degree to which you understood it and put it into a percentage or a letter grade, B+, A-, so on. Standardized testing began to emerge to compare and sort student achievement at the local, national, and international levels. Over time, teachers, principals, and superintendents, well, they began to have motivations for high student achievement too. After a while, some schools and districts started to tie teacher and principal pay and promotions to their students' achievement. A school or a district's funding began to have ties to student performance. While there were many incentives for good performance, poor performance in many places began to be met with demotions, loss of employment, changes in funding, or changes to a school's autonomy. The reduction of a student's performance to its numerical value became a currency in the ambition system, a valuable currency at every level of the system, from the individual student all the way up to the nation comparing itself with others. Okay, but what if you just peeked into the window of a classroom that's influenced by the ambition value? Well, you'd notice that the ambition classroom has more flexibility built into it if you compare it to the self-discipline class. Desk setups may vary. They don't have to be in rows facing the front. The teacher is still likely at the front of the room, but there may be different spaces to meet in or outside the classroom, likely a carpet, a circle area for primary school students, different table groupings for intermediate or high school. There might even be pods and areas, kind of closets, small rooms attached to the classrooms where students can go and do their work. Gone are the pictures of authority figures off the wall. They have been replaced with samples of good student work or learning materials, charts, posters, things that are reinforcing important information that you're studying or perhaps just encouraging you to do your best. Rewards begin to emerge in the ambition classroom. Ambition has this belief that if you provide incentives, people will be motivated and perform their best. There was a shift in how we dealt with misbehavior. Self-discipline tended towards punishing students for bad behavior, often with physical punishment. However, good behavior, according to self-discipline, was just expected. It's a given. Ambition changed this a little. Ambition introduced the idea that rewarding good behavior is often more important and often more effective than penalizing bad behavior. Reward systems, bonus marks, and various incentive programs emerged in classrooms to encourage students to perform at their best and be on their best behavior. Learning. It's subject-specific. You have an English class, a math class, science class, geography class, sports. You get marks in each subject independently. What is measurable? Well, that's most important in the ambition system. There is a heavy emphasis on learning objectives. 
Lessons are structured around students demonstrating the degree to which they can do what we want to see them do. Then we measure what can be measured easily, and what isn't measured easily is typically set aside. Ambition schools focus on the measuring of a very narrow band of skills and expectations, typically a small range of reading, writing, reasoning, and mathematical skills. Checking student work and attempting to give it an objective rating, that's time-consuming. Quantity of correct answers and accuracy of work can be measured on a large scale much faster and more numerically than attempting to assess the quality of student work. I realize that sentence needs a ton of unpacking, but maybe we'll come back to that later. See, elements of student work that are easy to quantify and assign a numeric value take precedent in the ambition system. So, what is the ambition value like in a school education? Well, students must have and value ambition in order to show the desire for achievement and strategizing required in the social ladder and game of free market capitalism and meritocracy. In short, when we think of school, we tend to think of the ambition values version of school. It's the most prevalent across the world still to this day. But it isn't school. It's one interpretation of what a school education should look like. What does the sensitivity value look like in school? The ambition value arose in response to the shortcomings of the self-discipline value as the world changed around it. The sensitivity value is arising in response to the shortcomings of the ambition value as the world is changing around it. Free market capitalism is still certainly the dominant economic force worldwide, and even socialist and communist countries use grades in their schools. But as capitalist countries move more toward a socialist version of capitalism, we see this sensitivity value emerging in those countries' school systems. The ambition value made school a game. By the mid-1990s, we saw a shift toward a new value in education in some of the more socialist-leaning countries like Canada, Finland, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Denmark, these countries all having very strong social safety nets, these countries have begun to move away from the idea of school as a competitive game. The sensitivity approach to school has tried to move away from the idea of a one-size-fits-all set of standards in the ambition system. The standards are definitely still there, but they're not one-size-fits-all. With ambition, there is one way to demonstrate the degree of your understanding. Within sensitivity, there are multiple ways, multiple opportunities to learn and demonstrate your understanding. Sensitivity attempts to make school as fair as it can for students by putting the students' needs first and the system's demands second. This is a very different approach compared to either the ambition or self-discipline approaches. The sensitivity system also addresses some inconsistencies in the ambition values narrative. Do good work and perform well on tests and you'll get good marks. Good marks, well, they'll give you better access to better opportunities in school and the workplace. It's a game. 
Your marks are how we keep score. But with any system, the cracks begin to show. Sensitivity addresses four main problems that the Ambition system faced. First, when you make a game, some people will play to the limit of the rules, and some will go beyond the rules if they know they can't get caught. Two, the game isn't fair for all players. Three, it's actually pretty difficult to keep score in this game. And four, scores achieved in school don't necessarily translate very well into how the real world keeps track of scores. So first, the rules. The game is all about the final scores on your work in the ambition system. This means getting high scores can be gamified, making the marks of student achievement less a reflection of the degree of understanding and more about the maximizing of getting points. Students, schools, districts, and nations have done many questionable things to inflate test scores in order to compete with other students, schools, districts, or countries. This ranges from acceptable but perhaps unexpected actions to gray areas to outright rule-breaking with the hopes of not being caught. When staff job security, teacher pay, and school funding are tied to the relatively variable nature of student performance, well, corruption and questionable behavior has frequently emerged. Second problem, the fairness. This game, the Ambition System school game, well, it wasn't the same game for every player. Sure, everyone has an equal opportunity to demonstrate their merit in the Ambition System. Granted, everyone is compared against the same one-size-fits-all system. Sure. But this game, by its very nature, penalizes some while providing insanely unfair advantages to others. Certain biological, cognitive capacities social, economic, behavioral, and environmental factors either provide huge hindrances or massive advantages for certain students. The cards are stacked against certain players, while the dice are loaded for others. Even given this, at the end of the day, your marks and merit haven't been the only thing determining how you are filtered. Parent wealth, social influence, and connections can often substitute for your marks and merit helping to ensure optimal filtering. 3. The difficulties of keeping score. Testing that accurately and effectively does what it intends to with no loopholes is a real challenge. So what often happens is we make simple tests. I don't mean easy tests, but the structure of the tests are very simple in design. Closed-ended right or wrong questions true or false, multiple choice, that makes the marking easy. But it doesn't necessarily make the understanding or ranking of student understanding easy to access. And in fact, each of these methods of testing can actually reward lucky guesses and not the degree of student understanding they intend to. So tests that demand higher order, more complex thinking, well, that requires more complex methods of assessment. Yet, these can take a long time to design. 
I won't go down too many rabbit holes here, but from experience, I can say that developing a worthwhile test is like creating software or designing a new board game from scratch. This needs its own series of podcasts yet again, but defining the criteria for what success looks like, engineering a suitable product for students to show that understanding, defining the quantity of success and the definition of success in this task, defining the rules it must follow, defining standards for ranking success, assessing it effectively and equally across all students and recording their marks without correcting for any unintended inconsistencies or bugs that I've come across along the way is a real challenge. Multiple choice, true and false, those things seem like a relief and but not something I like to do let alone ensuring that your school did anything that's remotely similar or even in the same arena as to what's happening down the road or across the country. Well, keeping score, getting a score, these are all actually quite difficult things to do, especially considering that these scores are being used to compare students, schools, and districts across the country and across the world. And finally, number four, how school keeps score versus how the real world keeps track of merit. The ambition system has a habit of getting stuck in a self-reinforcing loop that leads to what I call carnival games. School creates a system where what you do in school has incredible value, but only within school. This value inside schools, to me, is kind of like tickets won at a carnival. They don't mean much off the fairgrounds. Doing well in school means doing well on tests and assessed work. We see that as your merit. Those tests and assessed work exist within the school environment. Doing well on tests in a sterilized school environment isn't the same as doing well in the real world. In fact, rarely is doing well on tests seen to be worth any merit in the real world. High marks can be a good indicator of potential good performance, but they certainly can also be wrong. And they're not the only method of assessing merit. I mean, an incredible number of bright, intelligent people who had incredible merit, incredible potential, amazing skills, had been seriously harmed or not served by our school system. Perhaps their talents weren't within the narrow band of easily measured skills, Perhaps the arbitrary demands of how your learning needed to be demonstrated didn't match their brilliance in other domains. Perhaps that one standardized test that determined their future was written on a very difficult day. For some who are masters in one special area, their lower achievement in other areas closed doors for future schooling or work opportunities. Ambition did filter people according to merit, but only on a very narrow band of easy-to-measure merit. Those with skills in other areas, or skills that were not easily measured, which, let's be honest, are most often more complex and important skills for the world, these people were filtered out of the opportunities that may have allowed them to become far greater contributors to society, the workforce, and ultimately themselves. Interestingly, A number of the most successful people within the capitalist markets are the ones who dropped out of school or left as soon as they could. The talents needed to ascend to the highest levels of success 
in the real world ambition capitalist system, well, those are not cultivated in school. With all this in mind, some schools began stepping away from the faith that a one-size-fits-all approach to subject-specific grades and student achievement centered around student learning objectives, we started to think this wasn't the best way to prepare kids for work and society. Some schools have shifted towards sensitivity, inclusion, and fairness. How do we prepare students for the workplace and society? Sensitivity answers by saying, make them sensitive and fair individuals who are inclusive to create an ethical culture that empowers themselves and others to uphold ethics, establish thriving relationships, and conscious businesses, value the variety of ways things can be done, and move beyond the idea that there is one right way to move forward. So, how does that inform teaching and learning in schools? Well, teaching and learning becomes differentiated. Differentiated instructions means things don't have to be done just one way. Students are brought along a conveyor belt in the middle of a bell curve, and in theory, the smart ones don't have to wait and move on to the next thing, while those who are struggling fall further and further behind. Make school's challenge a fit for where the student is at. Students can receive different work or have different expectations put upon them. Students are taught or assessed in ways that serve them. There may be differences in how students are introduced to or engage with learning materials. We may have higher or lower expectations for various students across various subjects. There may be multiple ways for students to demonstrate their learning and understanding. They may not be forced into demonstrating what they know or what they can do in the one limited way that was done historically. You try to be better than you were yesterday. You aren't competing against others. Hence, standardized test scores are often given much less attention within the sensitivity schooling. Rather than your output or final answers, there is more attention put on process. We care less about whether or not you got the right answer, and more about the range of skills or abilities you used to get it. The world where success in school meant success in the workplace is eroding. It is still more true than not, but certainly a degree no longer ensures a good-paying, stable job. Doing well on tests in school no longer means you will do well in the world. Rather, how you engage with things is seen as a better predictor of future success. Much like postmodern art deconstructed what the previous rules of art were, sensitivity deconstructs what we thought of as a classroom and curriculum. Classrooms, when influenced by sensitivity, begin to look a lot different compared to the ambition and self-discipline-centered spaces. The room is intended to serve the students, and its layout, well, that's up for negotiation. No two sensitivity classrooms are likely to look the same. Chairs may be exercise balls or not present at all in favor of standing stations for students who struggle with attention when asked to sit for a long period of time. The classroom setup is very flexible and can change for different activities. You often see multiple areas for different activities. Reading tables, maker spaces, tech areas, even peace and quiet regions where students decide they can go when they need a timeout. 
The walls may be empty, or services whiteboard spaces for idea generation, or they may be filled with student work and ideas. Colors have probably been very specifically selected for certain effects on student well-being. In fact, there might be no walls at all. Some schools have adopted open-concept architecture where rooms flow into one another. There may be more reliance on teaching outdoors in nature, or, conversely, an increased reliance on virtual and online learning spaces. But the classroom isn't the only thing that has been reimagined. The curriculum is, too. Self-discipline and ambition curriculums tended to be a series of somewhat connected facts, concepts, and skills. Sensitivity schools try to weave the learning objectives together. Curriculums make more connections between big ideas, cross-curricular learning, and transdisciplinary skills. The IB or International Baccalaureate curriculums are some of the most common examples of transdisciplinary curriculums out there. And I'm going to catch myself because teachers love to use all kinds of buzzwords. And if you're not a teacher, perhaps some of the last few sentences there don't make any sense. So let me break this down. What does transdisciplinary mean? Well, for example, your writing skills aren't just confined to English class. Typically, in the ambition systems, your writing was assessed and marked in English class and in theory only impacted your English mark. But when you write an essay in history, or a report in geography or science, isn't your writing a factor there too? I mean, your ability to organize and express ideas effectively in the written word is what writing is all about. See, once you pick away at how we've historically arbitrarily confined certain skills or knowledge to certain subjects, the threads unravel on a curriculum pretty quickly. So your abilities in writing transcend any one discipline or subject and should be assessed across different subject areas, hence transdisciplinary. In the sensitivity curriculums, we see transdisciplinary skills, character strengths, these kinds of things become more important than content-specific expectations, more commonly found in ambition. For example, in Finland, some experiments are being done by dropping the idea of subjects altogether and instead teaching and assessing to specific projects and challenges that combine almost all the subjects together. Student interest in sensitivity begins to have some say about what is studied as opposed to the system selecting and dictating that. There tends to be a move toward more student-led inquiries where students explore big and meaningful questions instead of prescribed teacher activities and tasks, a move towards what's meaningful, engaging and relevant to this student, and away from the kids need to know this because it's in our system and it's what is required of them. There is a shift toward more authentic real-life projects and a move away from worksheets and textbooks. There is space for negotiation about what the work looks like in class between the student and teacher. There tends to be a heavier emphasis on class culture, class agreements, and inclusive activities. Much more attention is given to student well-being. Differences are accepted and often celebrated. Seeing that another person's perspective has merit is important. There is a shift towards students being able to be self-reflective and demonstrate metacognition. Schools informed by sensitivity seem to have some element of humility to them. It acknowledges that school isn't a perfect system, 
and that historically, it's had some very unfair aspects that shortchanged many students that moved through it. So the sensitivity school seeks to eliminate as much harm towards students as it can, and it intends to provide students with the opportunity to discover their merits, the kind that may not have been acknowledged or rewarded by previous values in the ambition system. So, what is the sensitivity value in school education? Well, the belief is that students must value and demonstrate sensitivity in order to show the inclusion and empathy required in the shared social support of a more socialist-leaning capitalist market and in a world where the ladders of social mobility are not as reliable as they once were, and instead, the world seems to value connection and relationship for the betterment of all involved. What does the development value look like in education? Well, that's what the next several episodes of our podcast will be all about. For now, here's the appetizer. Development. Students must value and demonstrate development in order to show the transformation and adaptation required in the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity of our rapidly changing world. A world with multiple volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous economies happening simultaneously. The previous three values, self-discipline, ambition, and sensitivity, see themselves as the answer. Think of them like tools. Three different tools to help you accomplish three different jobs, three different intended outcomes. But just like a hammer and a saw and a level can help you to accomplish three very different jobs, If the only tool you have is a hammer, everything has to start looking like a nail. Each value is suitable for certain tasks, but not for others. Saws make lousy hammers, hammers make lousy levels, and levels make lousy saws. The development value doesn't bring a new tool to the mix and state that its tool is the best for all jobs. Rather, the development value attempts to act as a tool belt. Utilizing the strengths of each of the previous three values while attempting to sidestep their limitations. The development value is more adaptive, more flexible, and at times chameleon like. The development value continues to push the line that divides school and life outside of school. Self discipline presented a curriculum divided into a few subjects where the world was a series of memorizable, digestible snippets of information that could be repeated back. Ambition presented a curriculum where the world was divided into a few more subjects with a series of learning objectives you needed to demonstrate that you had understanding of. Sensitivity presented a curriculum divided into skills that are relevant across subjects, where narratives and open-ended questions are explored in combination with student interests, to make things meaningful, and they're assessed mainly by the process of how in-students engaged with them. Development may have some pre-selected aims and goals, but more of it will be centered around serving the child where they are at now. Almost like coaching, it will attempt to find what it is the student needs now to best serve their development as an end in and of itself, instead of making school an experience as a means to an end. The world is changing too quickly to adequately reverse engineer 
what a school system should look like that will meet the demands of the workplace citizenry and sense of self 20 years into the future. So what does the development value look like in education? Well, to answer that, our next handful of episodes will be discussions with educators who are working at eking out what development looks like. That being said, you'll have a hard time finding the development value in education. Worldwide, our education systems are still very much centered around the ambition value. Traces of the self-discipline value remain, and sensitivity is only beginning to take root in some places. The development value right now is more like a fragrance that is wafting in from the distance. Back to sports and cocktails. We said earlier that self-discipline, ambition, sensitivity, and development are like four different games with different definitions of how to win, yet they're all sharing the same field. We said that what we call education is actually a cocktail, a blend of certain parts of each very different value, each having a very different taste. We call the mix one thing, when really it is four very different ingredients blended together in a way that makes it difficult to distinguish each one on its own. When you listened to our descriptions of each value, perhaps you made some connections between your own experiences in school as a student or perhaps as a teacher or as a parent watching your kids go through school. And if you're a student and you've made it this far, perhaps you're starting to see a bit of the world that's going on around you. Depending on when and where you went to school, you likely encountered all of these values in different proportions. We kind of laid each of these values out almost as an archetype, but you're unlikely to see any school or even educator who embodies only the traits of one value entirely. You are more likely to see a teacher, a school, or a country with a center of gravity in one of these values. For example, an ambition-centered school will still have a place for some practices, activities, beliefs, or structures from both the self-discipline and sensitivity values interpretations of school. But ultimately, these are being given attention because they found ways to make the practices from the other values serve the ambition values agenda. Ultimately, all traits will lead back to one of these values. One specific idea about how to best prepare kids for the world as they see it. We presented these values as archetypes. We presented them as separate entities. But the reality is that ambition is still the most dominant and influential value in school education. Every country values grades, student achievement, and the idea that we need to quantify data about what's happening in the class in order to help sort for future stages of school and the workforce. But what we see most commonly out in the world are two types of school, wrestling with ambition from one of two sides. We either see a self-discipline ambition school or an ambition-slash-sensitivity school. What I mean by this is a self-discipline ambition school, it still uses ambition's grades in the tracking of student progress, but it's largely informed by the self-discipline practices. Make marks and student progress their priority, 
but they rely on many of the teaching methods and shared values of authority presented in self-discipline. The other is the ambition-slash-sensitivity school. Ambitions, grades, and tracking of student progress are there, but they're enhanced or upgraded by sensitivity practices. Marks and student progress are their priority, but they focus heavily on differentiated teaching methods to help serve student achievement and boost lower-performing students, while at the same time challenging the stronger students. Okay, <sighs> let's pause here. In summary, ambition is still calling most of the shots in education. We usually just think that ambition's approach to school is what school is. It's the definition of school. Yet, sensitivity seems to be the next phase that schools or countries are moving towards once they move beyond the ambition value and once it's run its course. My prediction is that the sensitivity value still needs a few decades to evolve and refine itself. What Reinventing Education, this podcast, wants to explore is the value that comes after sensitivity. We are dedicating this season of episodes to talking with those who are on the cutting edge of establishing what the development value looks like. We are looking at the pioneers who are starting schools and programs influenced by the development value. And we're talking to the hackers, those who are working in conventional school settings, but changing them from the inside out. After our discussions with these folks on the cutting edge, we'll look back, reflect, and try to connect the dots between our guests, hopefully in service of sharing a deeper understanding about what the world and the future of education might look like. How do we best prepare children for the workforce, citizenry, and how to live in their own lives? My belief is that there might not be an answer to that yet. I think that question is an ongoing inquiry, and one that the answer to which is evolving and perhaps becoming more compelling than it has been previously. And as we come up with new answers, we come up with new ideas about what the workforce, citizenry, and what it means to be a person are. I mean, we're only on this planet for a very short period of time, relatively speaking. We've only got a handful of decades at best on this rock that's spinning in the middle of what appears to be nearly infinite space, hurtling around a ball of fire. And really, if life is too short for bad coffee, it's certainly too short for subpar education that gives us a less than compelling answer to how we should be spending our childhood and adolescence preparing to live our lives. So now here's the part of the podcast where Brendan and I reconnect and I get my head out of the clouds, off my soapbox, and put my feet back down on the ground. Head out of the clouds and feet on the ground. <laughs> All right, so you did a, a, a fantastic job there summarizing uh, essentially the first season and those four values. Kept us kept us waiting for a while there. What are they, Rob? What are the four values? Tell us, tell us. You told I like us being a tease. And you, you gave us a nice, a nice clear explanation there. Um, so 
what I would do here at this point is direct people back to the first season if they wanted more information on that, because at the uh, you gave a really good introduction in each of the episodes also and dug further into what those values were and what they looked like in school. And then we spent a good amount of time in those episodes kind of going through and deconstructing and trying to put it back together to explain our current understanding of how those values are operating in school, especially the first three, the self-discipline, the ambition, and the um, sensitivity value. Um, so we're going to do something a little bit different in this second half of uh, season two, episode one of Reinventing Education. So we're going to do something a little bit different rather than going back over and digging further into those values again. We're going to do a little activity on it based on our own, our own experiences and our own opinions on some of the keywords that, that you brought up in the first half of this episode. But before that, just we'll just spend a few minutes kind of reflecting now you've had a day or two to reflect on your uh, initial uh, monologue in the episode um, and I know there's a few extra things you wanted to add or clarify I didn't make too many notes because I, I really did think it was was really clear um, and we got back into really explaining our key purpose for this podcast which was to talk about those four values and the three main goals of school as we define them uh, occupational development uh, citizenship and self-development um, and I guess what I've found is when I've had discussions with people and I've kind of brought up this idea um, that these three values in operation most people I've spoken to get that idea and they're on board with it, but they see very little purpose in the values that are not the ones that they're kind of operating from, which I guess is, is the point we made in season one, that the, those first three of, self, um, of self-discipline, ambition, and uh, sensitivity, if you're kind of operating from a, a standpoint that that is your... Um, paradigm or your way of seeing education you do kind of have uh, somewhat of a judgmental attitude possibly that the other values are not bringing as much or even dismissing them almost outright um, and I guess what we're pushing now in this season and going forward is the development value which says that each of these given the context um, each of those values has a place and we're looking for the healthiest version of those three values in the right place at the right time to really um, push forward learning. So um, I really like your booze analogy, mixing them all up, all your, making all your Tom Cruise booze cocktails of education. Um, and, and the big point you made at the end is that most schools are really deep into this ambition, um, competitive um, kind of uh, system, which is almost, well, it's seemingly impossible to escape from in the current kind of global setup. You can't really step out from that ambition because it's so heavily in step with the capitalism that's kind of running the planet. Um, so 
you you mostly have schools that are acknowledging the ambition paradigm but also going from a self discipline kind of more hierarchical and more conservative possibly kind of um, take on that and then you have the sensitivity schools uh, and even schools that are going beyond who still cannot completely phase out or even move away from that ambition value and so they're trying to either make an uneasy negotiation or even when we get to the schools that we're going to talk about in season two, these are schools that are trying to integrate that in, into their school system. But, it, but, but that's, kind of, that's still the hard question. Is like, can't ignore that value of ambition. It's, it's seemingly impossible to ignore. We'll, we'll dig into that more. But it's then, do you bolster that from a self-discipline oriented kind of school or one that's more on the inclusion sensitivity deconstructivist side yeah it seems to so, be the, the ultimate yeah. general situation in most mainstream schooling is kind of this battle between who's going to have more say on how we do ambition schooling is the sort of self-discipline side of this going to win out on informing how we approach ambition or is the sensitivity side going to win on win out on how we approach ambition and it, it seems think, crazy that at the core of the ambition system it's sort of like the numbers or letters on a report card or what's holding everything hostage without going down every possible rabbit hole it sounds crazy when the last sort of like trump question that can overrule everything is you present any new idea in education and then eventually someone's going to go, but how do we turn this into a mark on a report card? At the end of the yeah, day, that's if, what's if, holding students, teachers, schools, districts, even countries sort of at ransom is to go, okay, yeah, we can make changes. But at the end of the day, how's this going to translate? What are we going to put on the report cards? And it, that's Ab absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just got to come down to that idea of measurement, though, isn't it? We're obsessed that it has to be measured. And I, I, I agree with the fact that there's a lot of value in measuring things. For sure. But it's when the measurement, when the measurement becomes more important than the thing that is being measured that, that, it, that it becomes ridiculous. And without going around in circles, because we have touched on this before, that's something we're going to really have to get into in this podcast over the next few seasons of how is it even possible to get beyond that? Because when we start talking about these development schools and they're trying to do the best of each system, well, that measurement or, or the obsession with measurement is by, by no means the healthy version of the ambition uh, value. The healthy version of that ambition value would be the um, healthy competition that pushes you and your peers and others forward mm -hmm. um, and, and is its own reward and produces um, a process and products that are rewarding for you as a student and for the community around you. Well, I think this is the one piece that I feel like I didn't say in the monologue portion of this podcast, which is the idea 
of what learning should be. And I think it's self-discipline. There's some element of learning should be something that is easily repeatable back to authority. Um, the shift that moves, I think, in the ambition system is learning should be measurable. In fact, it must be measurable. And measurable sure. doesn't necessarily mean relevant yeah. or important for a student or even necessarily useful in the future. It just the learning needs to be measurable and most often measurable in the here and now. If we have time, we can get into our own anecdotes of you know, tests I've done early in the year and kids have got perfect on and do the exact same test later in the year and they completely fail and bomb it. But we end up using that mark from the start of the year. We won't go down those rabbit holes, but the important idea here is ambition believes whatever you're doing, it has to be measurable first and foremost. Relevance, importance, those things come much later as long as that measurable part is met first. The big shift that happens between ambition to sensitivity is that sensitivity believes the learning needs to be meaningful. And it tries to achieve that by differentiating. It tries to do that by bringing in student choice, student voice, negotiation over what the learning, what the product of, you know, what their work should look like. Um, I think that's the biggest shift from sensitivity is the idea of, okay, well, at best, you could combine sensitivity and ambition and go, okay, we have to mark this stuff. We have to keep everyone accountable. It's on report cards. Got it. But it needs to be meaningful and meaningful to a student first, where, which you see in sensitivity. Whereas in ambition, it's, well, it has to be measurable and we have to be calling the shots on what it is. We've got the curriculum. We've got the clear standards already laid out that we need to be hitting so we can compare ourselves with others and this sort of thing. And sensitivity step is to say, well, that serves the system. Could we serve the student instead because they're the one who's here doing the learning at the center of this? Yeah, sure. And uh, the, the way I've heard that described before is going from um, efficient to effective almost in terms of learning. So it's kind of the... So an ambition paradigm, we want, the, we want the learning to be efficient and so we can measure easily. And then if we're moving forward into more of the sensitivity paradigm, we're looking for it to also be effective. Sort of my hypothesis that I'll look at, and we'll, we'll check over our next handful of episodes with the interviews with people in development schools, I would say the shift between sensitivity to development looks like learning in sensitivity being meaningful into development being learning that's transformative. It's not only sure. yeah. meets you where you are, but is like <laughs> psychoactively impacting like your sense of self, how you conduct yourself, how you relate how, with others and how you integrate into your environment. Um, sure. And... I'll leave it at that. And I, at the end of these interviews, we'll kind of look back and see if we can give a more complete um, definition of what the development school looks like because we don't yet have a lot of examples of it out there in the world. And here on the podcast, we're, we're reaching all over the world, literally from Romania to Switzerland to San Francisco, like to the Ukraine. Everyone's scattered at this point. We're not all in one place. So we're hoping to kind of bring people together 
through discussion on this podcast and then be able to look back and, and compare notes and go, okay, well, here's what it's looking like as it's emerging in all these pockets around the planet. Sure, yeah, that, and that, I'm looking forward to the interviews to, to, to just seeing those connections. Um, um, on both sides, people who are pioneering schools and have whole schools, is uh, we've already spoken to uh, the guy at the Millennium School, Chris, and, and I guess then we're looking at those hackers and people who are maybe still in positions like us. I guess I've gone back into an IB school, which is pretty heavily kind of sensitivity led generally in, in, in most areas and maybe moving towards that development value uh, kind of slowly. And then you're starting your, your kind of new role in a, uh, in a German school over there in, Belgium. So it would be interesting to see how that compares to the school we were both in previously in terms of of, uh, of those values. But um, what we're going to do now then, so maybe this is a good point to transition into a little kind of activity. Let our hair down. That's been, if people are still listening, that's been an hour and 10 minutes or so of um, of, of hard talk. Talk all about the the real the real nitty gritty of these values so thick, we're gonna let our, our short hair down our thick and condensed hair is now going to be unbundled down onto our shoulders um i guess what we, what i did here is i um picked out uh, the keywords that i heard from all the values in your in, in your talk and i'm just going to throw it out there onto the table and you can either respond with an anecdote or you can give an opinion on it or where you think it's going so um let me hit you with the first one rules so when i say rules right now what is it that comes to your mind in terms of the schools you've just been in or going into or the yeah Oh, you can throw it back to me. I can take it. <laughs> I guess the first thing that comes to mind is just how different rules look throughout the different values. Um, I feel I'll try and do a loose caricature, perhaps quickly through each value. I think in self-discipline schools, you see rules like commandments of probably negatively term, um, negatively worded. Don't do this. Don't do this. You're not allowed to yeah. do this. Never do this. And you see those words put in that sort of negative sense up on the wall. And, you know, it's don't hit, don't interrupt, don't speak over the teacher. And you still can walk into classrooms and, and totally see those. I think yeah. when you move towards ambition, you get into more of the positive side of like, we, you know, we listen to each other. You take your turn or you see the pot. It's the exact same rules, but it's just a positive take on it. And then sure. I think sensitivity classrooms in my own class having been one of these at one point you usually just kind of come up with a few rules or a few agreements again positively worded um you know in my own class i think it was three years ago i worked together with the students to develop a sentence and i remember one of the girls just came up with the line where she just said um we treat people and things with respect and it was like any possible rule I could possibly think of could fall under that sentence. So whether it's someone interrupting, someone hitting, someone cheating, someone misusing materials, it was like, yeah, you know, we agree 
to treat people and things with respect and that nails every possible rule. We don't need to articulate the 50 things you don't do or the 50 things you do do in this room. We agree to that and we refer back to that. Sure, and I, I guess um, the idea now is that they are worded positively, generally rules in, in schools that are ambitious on moving towards sensitivity directly and in a more sensitivity-based school, they're kind of called things such as essential agreements where it's, it is supposedly a negotiation, but really what it, it turns out to be is not so much a negotiation, but more a more just a, a reaffirming or reconfirming things that we kind of already know from the from the environment what we should and shouldn't do what we're kind of we're not really making the rules again or rewriting them we all kind of know them what we're doing is verbalizing them and agreeing to kind of follow them whereas i guess a hierarchical or a, a more old school system would be well we still all know what they are, but they're just up there on the wall and just don't do them. And I, yeah, it's totally that if anybody goes in and says, well, the rules have changed or there's no rules here, you can see that in any of the values because that doesn't necessarily relate to rules. That relates to things such as how well is the teacher um, how well is the teacher relating to the class and how positive is the actual atmosphere within the classroom <laughs> or how much fear does the teacher have uh, the children? Oh, this this under, comes back to the, the how question. And as soon as you answer, like, how do we do rules? Well, each yep. value is going to have a very different idea about how you do rules. Sure. Self-discipline, put them on the yep. wall and punish them when they don't follow them. Yeah, sure. The ambition put them on the wall, but they're positively worded and reward kids when they do them, you know, and sensitivity, like slight digression here. I feel we need to do an entire episode on how sensitivity does a sleight of hand and pretends it's not doing what ambition and self-discipline do, but it, it just re repackages it and rewords it little bait and switch. And it goes, Oh, we don't do rules, but we do agreements between each other. We do agree. Sure. And you want to be, I think that's some of the things that we'll talk about when we get to sensitivity, because on the surface, it seems like this is something that we're both super on board with and we love it. And it's, it is true that there, of the three, that's the one that we most gravitate towards. But by no means do we think it answers all of the problems. And, 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 and one of the issues maybe with the sensitivity or deconstructivist kind of value is maybe right at this point, it's not really being quite honest about uh, about how it keeps people in line because school at its core has that kind of authoritative undertow going through we're, we're, we are we're, we're parents teachers are acting in some senses as parents to those children especially in primary ages and so you know we throw out the one word rules and it's like yeah the, the analogy you like to use is like you shake one branch and it moves like the whole forest and this is the thing rules is so deep into there because it you know it's not just those words on the wall. It's actually how do we relate to each other through our entire school day in, day out. Next yeah. word. Just before we do, I want to get one uh, more small dig in it at sensitivity there is, you know, to be fair to sensitivity, one of its big missions and one of the things it corrects in education is to say, hey, this has been a very 
system-centric thing up to this point. School has been largely serving the government, the society, and then within ambition, it started to serve itself more than the students at times. And sensitivity wants to step back and go, no, 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 let's put the kids back at the center of this. And in doing that, there is part of it that doesn't want to feel like a system that's imposing anything. It kind of wants to put authority off to the side. And I think it takes some of those elements, the self-discipline and ambition schools and tries to pretend they're not in the room anymore, but they're really just disguised or hidden in the closet, calling the shots after class. Or I can't come up with a great analogy off the top of my head. None of those things have gone away. It's just a renegotiation of how do we do How do we deal with the fact that at the end of the day, you have to be here. There's a tyrannical aspect to school, you know, yeah. it, it's still here, but, but to be fair to sensitivity, how do we minimize the negative aspects of that? And at times, I think it goes too far at kidding itself that it's still not a tyrannical thing that's forcing kids to be there. Good. Next word. For that, Rob. The next word, word number two on our list is our three, whatever. <laughs> or a zany a list. Child, childhood. Mm. You can pass. If you, if you think it's not interesting to discuss, you can say, give me another one. Well, again towards the end of my monologue there, I alluded to this, that kids don't really have a say in most circumstances, whether they go to school or not. They're there because they have to be there. Our governments or parents or whatever have said that they need to be there. Um, and you know, if a kid's spending six, seven, eight hours a day, five days a week, most weeks a year in this place, we're really deciding what childhood what a large part of childhood should look like within our given culture. Um, and in terms of the values, you know, I think each has a very different view on childhood. Just off the top of my head, the kind of general sense is like, to some degree, I think self-discipline sees it as like, you're not ready yet. You're, you're a less than full person and you're lucky we're willing to tolerate you now while we bring you up to speed to where you need to be. Um, well, yeah, I just, I just wanted to jump in there because I think there's two almost conflicting views in that self-discipline uh, idea of the almost Victorian children should be seen and not heard. Uh, with with this kind of like almost 1950s, we went out at 7 a.m. with a with a bottle of water and some sandwiches, and we didn't come home till like 10 p.m. and we had the time of our lives, running wild and free, and 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 kids these days don't get to do that. And it's like though this from the self-disciplined people who work or teaching those kind of. Um, Errors or even parents that kind of seem to be operating that kind of point of view. I hear both of those. Not explicitly children should be seen and not heard, but 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 more like, you know, they should be really able to follow the rules. They should be able to really get down to it and stick to their work. <laughs> but when I was a kid, we were out in the they don't it's not necessarily that they don't that they're mutually um, incompatible, but there's definitely something there in that conception of childhood. 
Yeah. Um, I think also to be fair too, I think it's really, really easy to, <laughs> we've already slammed sensitivity. I feel I slammed self-discipline. I gave it a pretty gory look, the authoritarian teacher, the, you know, the former military person who's walking around smashing kids on the hands, these sorts of things. There, there's one story I didn't reference, but it was a Prussian leader who, well, it was common to keep like a, a mark book where nowadays we'd keep, you know, every test the kid writes, we'd mark their marks down. Well, this dude's literally keeping a mark book, which was common at the time for the types of punishments you handed out, like yeah. number, number of hand slaps, number of back whips, number of cuffs over the head. And like that was common practice back then. But it was this one dude was famous because like he was literally dishing out like a hundred plus of these days a day and okay. i do not mean to make light of the physical child abuse that was going on no not at all but i just i can and like this guy was being literally rewarded for this and like acknowledged as an incredible person that aside so it's really easy to crap on the self-discipline value as it was historically seen i think it's tidied itself up over time um, yeah. and is still seen in school. To be fair, I didn't do justice to what the healthy and the positive sides are. And I just want to give two really quick examples. I think one healthy example of teaching in the self-discipline approach has been my own experiences with the martial arts. And these, are, these have been disciplines outside of school, but I think reflecting this value in how we were taught was like, hey, we've already totally got this figured out. We're really not interested in what you're going to bring to the table. We're part of a lineage here. And if you submit to like the knowledge, the wisdom, the skill of this sensei, like we can bring you up to speed, but you've got to be listening to what we're saying. You've got to be doing what we're doing. And we have the authority here. And I think the healthy difference here is that authority was earned. And when that authority is earned, I think that self-discipline side of education is its healthiest when you go no this is the authority like who are you going to learn basketball from michael jordan or yeah. some other guy who are you going to learn mixed martial arts fighting from brock lesnar or someone else it's like no if that person has earned the authority that person has the right to call the shots and not leave yeah. space for you you're learning from them that is the that's the, the the master craftsman kind of mode, isn't it? This is the guilds, and this is how <laughs> this is the other side of education that we didn't talk about in the sense that when the Prussian model was evolving, or or even before, there was a lot of apprenticeships out there, or unofficial apprenticeships where people were learning these skills from master craftsmen, and 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 very the, the healthiest side of that, they were. Uh, air quotes, choosing to be there, they had their own necessities of why they needed to be there, but there was the tradition of them being there, of the apprentice being there, learning their craft and learning their skill. And that is the positive side of the self-discipline. And, and the I hope wanna, is that inside. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to hop in and give one other positive example of the self-discipline. Hopefully it backs up the point I've just cut you off from making. Um, yeah. The other one was uh, a high school history teacher I had in my own growing up. Um, again, you know, this is a blur between the ambition back to self-discipline version of school. Of course, we still had marks. Of course, we still had report cards. 
you know, all these sorts of things. But, you know, this guy taught my parents. He'd been at the school for a very long time. Uh, you know, he retired just after I had left school. He was at the end of his career. Um, he was without a doubt, he was operating his class like a self-disciplined classroom, obviously not hitting students, obviously not doing that. And I think it's like the book Utopia. Is it the one where like the whole class lives in a utopian society, but there's the one person who's kind of like hidden away and has to be tortured. And because they allow the torture of one, everyone benefits, you know, this guy, okay. this guy, he kind of directed his whole class shame-based uh, <laughs> discipline to one student. This is your positive anecdote, right? Yeah, no, I'm coming to it. <laughs> okay. He kind of directed it to one student. And, you know, I, often it was good friends of mine, sadly, who were that student. And those people hated this guy, for wow. sure. Yeah. And he yeah, would yeah, go out of, of his course. way to make an example of one person. But that served as an example for the rest of us to be like, wow, you don't mess with this dude. Mm-mm. The positive flip side of that was almost everyone else who had him straight up says he's the best teacher they had in their entire high school experience because of some of his self-discipline characteristics. One was he did not talk to us like teenagers. He did not treat us at our age. He expected a much higher level of maturity than any of yeah. my teachers expected from us. Yes, there's totally downsides with this guy's teaching method for sure and how elements of how he handled his class. But one of the things is he was the first person for most of us adolescents and, and teenagers who had someone like, I'm not talking to you at your age. I'm expecting way beyond your years from you. And if you're not living up to that, I'm not tolerating that. I'm going to pull you up to this level and I'm not talking down to you guys. The other baffling, like this guy, he was, the, he was just podcasts. He was a lecturer. We weren't doing engaging activities. We weren't picking, you know, it wasn't sensitivity. We picked an aspect of history we were interested in and followed up. It, and it wasn't even really the ambition style of like, all right, you know, we've done the talk. Here's the test or here's the puzzle or here's an essay yeah. right away for you guys to write. It was like, no, you show up to class, you listen to me and you're going to get what you need. And miraculously, that was the case. Like this guy was like listening to in just completely engaging podcasts. He was so passionate about what he was teaching that listening to this guy, like you wanted to be in his room and he was the only teacher where I actually had the option to choose teachers and courses. I would only purposely take his courses whether I needed the credits or not. And I took him, he was the only teacher I took for four years straight and I was not the only one. And that was a really positive side of this. Yes, he lectured and there wasn't space for our opinions. And the last little piece I'll say about him, like he played the self-discipline game within the ambition mark system because it was kind of a known thing that the highest mark you could get regardless of your achievement in grade 10, I think was an 80%. No one ever got an 81 or higher. And then the idea was in grade 11, the highest you could get was an 85. And that's how everyone's essays and everyone's work went through the guy. We got our essays back and, you know, looking from a teacher's perspective now, there was no mark explaining what you gained or lost marks for. There was no comments about like, hey, yeah, you carried through on the learning objective here. None of that. This was this guy's opinion on what your mark should be. And it was fairly accurate other than his kind of arbitrary mark thing. But I'll tell you, in my last year of high school, 
you know, my last essay, like I wanted to prove something to this guy and arguably it's better than anything I've written since. And I submitted, I got 96% and it was like a four year journey to get to that mark. And when I received that, it was like, there was nothing in my entire yeah. education experience that, that beats that. Now, you know, it would be easy to just say like, well, this guy's kind of part of the antiquated old way of doing things. And he might even get fired, you know, in 2018 for how he was approaching things. Sure. But I did see in him the, also the most positive aspects of this self-discipline approach to education and that kind of authoritative, at times tyrannical educator. So I do want to give it its due here because it's easy to, to write it off. Well, I mean... The way the way it would look maybe in the sensitivity value, that same thing is that it would be more of a negotiation. So we when we run our a lot of our classes, we have the conferring model where we'll call kids over and we'll coach them and we'll get, but to whatever extent it's like a negotiation almost. It's like what do you think you should get better at? Whereas the master craftsman or the the old school approach would be the we're not even going to pretend there's a negotiation. Now, I will say that in some of the sensitivity, some of the, the, the conferring, uh, it's not always completely honest. And getting back to the point earlier about looking at it honestly and being aware of, of our own weaknesses within that area, the craftsman model would be, no, you listen and you do this and you will improve. Your job is to turn up and try your best. There's a, a lot to be said for that. But it also closes down a lot of those other areas that you're saying. And so it's like, yeah, you got the 96%. What would Rob McLeod of 2018 have lost by going through that same model over four years? yeah you built up that self-discipline and you really wanted it but what kind of lost in the scope you've got it's super narrow and you're following the rules the critical thinking skills the other the the, the uh, self-management skills maybe they're not coming along in the same way and so when you remove the scaffolding of this great teacher maybe hasn't given you the broad enough skills to then enter the the kind of world but the 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 drawback of that is it could be that you don't get that awesome self-discipline from a teacher skills uh, and those critical thinking skills because you did talk about this a little bit in the first part of the, just because the school orients from one of those values doesn't mean they're especially doing it well. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, the very worst of it would be if you were in a self-disciplined school, but it was doing it badly, mm -hmm. then it would be, it would just be a nightmare for everyone involved because you are getting the downside of that kind of almost abusive relationship um, you're not, and it's not balanced. It's not, um, it's not done. And I, and I'm going to use the word sensitively here, which is kind of like, it's, it's the first time we've kind of blurred those two, I think it's like, and I'm probably, I'm probably, um, 
kind of not being very clear in this thought either. <laughs> but but your teacher had, even within his self-discipline, had to have a real sense of the students and what they were and, and what they needed. And he, he would have had to tweak that for each class and each student. And his own sensitivity would have been in the mix. In the, and so you'd remove that and you do get the tyrant teacher who's maybe not even going to get any positives out of the self-discipline. On the other side, you get maybe the sensitivity teacher who has kind of removed um, some of the self-discipline uh, negatives so the children are really appreciated and really treated fairly and we're really looking for what's best for those kids. But if we're not doing that well, then they're... I, I think they would be happier. If, I, 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 would, I would hasten to say that it's like failing to do sensitivity school is better than failing to do self-discipline school. Sure. In my, in my eyes, if, for the soul, for the spirit, for, for the wellness of the individual. But as an overall educational learning experience, they're, they're going to be equally uh, as unhelpful. Yeah. And we've alluded to this before. And, and just in case we haven't said it this succinctly, each of these values has a healthy and an unhealthy version. So you can, as Brendan's just said, you can see unhealthy and healthy self-discipline or healthy or unhealthy iterations of the ambition value, healthy or unhealthy of sensitivity. Um, and that's what makes this tricky because you can't just say like, well, ambition came later and solved more of the problem. So ambition is better than self-discipline. Um, I don't know. We, we could get into huge fireside chats about, well, is really healthy self-discipline schooling better than unhealthy ambition schooling? We can get into nuanced yeah. discussions, but let's just leave it there. We, we, we can leave that there, of course. And I, I think we've been fairly balanced here with, with positives and negatives, but I'm feeling like I'd like to end with quite a few positives. So how about we do a quick fire round? Sure. Only 20 minutes per keyword. <laughs> and let's just stick to really short, positive opinions on what we've seen in our schooling. So, Sure. Okay. Uh, student interest. Do you have an example off the top of your head of something that you've seen in your own experience uh, that, that has involved student interest in a really positive way? I, I'm gonna, I have something, but I'm going to throw this one back to you first. Okay. I do have one that's popped up, and it's one I go back to a lot because it was, it was a kind of strange one. It was my first kind of year of <laughs> inquiry learning, and we did a, a pretty decent inquiry that was, I think, about inventions. Um, and as, it's, as, as we're finishing up and we're kind of rounding up our final presentations about inventions and how they've affected people's lives, this thing kind of starts bubbling up. There's one kid who really is really interested in water filters. And so I help him to do a little bit of research and the other kids in the class are really like into this too as we find out more about people 
who don't have clean water to drink and, and how this water filter is a relatively cheap way to to kind of help out with that problem and we and the the interest essentially for about a week because i hear a lot of people talk about student interest and i know there's always an underlying motivation and push but this was like intense like for maybe a week week and a half it's like how are we going to get the money for this um for this water filter that we now definitely need to buy and they arranged like you know the bake sale idea that we've done many many times before they did it like okay in two days we're doing a bake sale this they did the bake sale they made like 200 200 dollars or whatever bought this water filter and at the same time we were pursuing through the ymca who we worked for like links to myanmar burma so we could actually send this out to a community as quickly as possible and and we did it and within a week and a half it was in the post to Myanmar and another few days later we got some photos back of it in use um totally totally stemmed from the student interest of one kid that just kind of like infected the whole class and it was like just this massive motivational push um, that was ultimately really uh, successful. A very, very small um, way. The nature of things is that we wanted to follow this up more, and it didn't necessarily happen quite as much. But the, but the, just that energy. It's what we talk about when we talk about inquiry learning and, and student agency. Um, it's just actually, in my experience, very rare to just get it where it's just a fire and it takes over things and I uh, yeah that was really positive for me and I've held that with me now for six or seven years is really a, a absolute highlight that had almost nothing to do with me other than me saying okay here's how you can do that next thing or here's how you can do the next thing and the next thing that was my only role in that wow yeah and I love that because it's the idea of teacher as facilitator um I've got similar examples where there's like really positive real world effects. I'll give one just very different than that instead. Um, I remember there was just one day I was like, you know, for my own interest sake, I'm just going to dedicate this 45 minute period on a Friday afternoon. And I'm just going to keep asking the class, what do, you, what do you think would be the best use of our time right now? And it was just interesting because it took like 10 minutes of me kind of helping them facilitate past the answers they thought they were supposed to give and then start to yeah. like really tune into like ideas about like, no, like what, how could we best use this time? And we didn't come up to a whole class agreement, but it was interesting to see the class in a very short period of time split off into groups of interest in that time. And, you know, it's something I would have liked to have followed up on much more thoroughly. Um, but it was just interesting that, um, when you let student interest in that sense guide everything, um, it's just interesting how different it is than what I would have thought might have been the best use of our time. Um, there's a lot more rabbit holes we could go down there with that one, but let's move on to the next button. It's a huge one, isn't it? It's a huge one. Let's, let's do one more and then I think we should call it because we've been, we've been at it now for over an hour, I think. So let's do one quick last one as a, a nice positive way to kind of wrap it up. So let's do let's do a non-controversial one so that I don't 
go off. <laughs> I don't set off any more rockets in the last three minutes. Um, classroom layout. Hmm. You know, this is the fun part. I, I won't go to my cynical side. Um, you and I, we get our digs in at Pinterest. That, yeah. you know, Pinterest can be this place where you get a million and one ideas to create beautiful visual things. And I have a little bit of cynicism, but I'll be honest, like I'm a closet Pinterest appreciator. Oh, I love it. I love it's, it. It's a great website. It is, it is great. I, I don't like it for the same reason some other people like it, but I do like it. Can I just pause you there for a moment, Rob? Because I just want to point out today's sponsor. <laughs> um, Pinterest.de. Pinterest.de. <laughs> P.de. <laughs> the place yeah. to go for I all. Love of Pinterest. You. Love Pinterest. All your it's great. Pins stuff. and your trusts. <laughs> but I, what I loved about your classroom layout was you. You know, we have those boards on the wall, right? That we, they're like rectangular boards that we that we put display on. You got the you got the technician to put it up diagonal. I did. You have the only diagonal. The only diagonal um, um, presentation board I've ever seen. Thank you. It's on a more meaningful, <laughs> on a more meaningful note, the one reason I love Pinterest is because you do see the brilliance and creativity of people who think about how to use space. And I'll be honest, that is yeah. without a question the biggest area that I need to improve as a learner. You've seen my classroom; typically looks like a mess, looks disorganized, chaotic. Um, has some intention behind it, but is not elegantly um, set up compared to the way others do. And I don't just mean aesthetically, I mean functionally as well. And I love um, the idea of the classroom itself being changed from the place that, you know, the desks and the workbooks and the students and the teacher are in to let's utilize this space to be an active living thing. Um, and there are just brilliant examples of this that I see on Pinterest or people's Instagram accounts um, yeah. of just brilliant uses of space, really. So um, I just love seeing the creativity that's out there. Absolutely. And I, I think um, if you go into uh, kindergarten classrooms and reception classrooms in England, you will see, you'll see that. It, it, it kind of gets phased out as you go further up the school in many places. Not not all. There's some uh, in in my school in England. When I was first there. We had um, a role play area in every class, all the way up to grade five, along with your standard kind of reading areas and the the, the little areas of the room. <laughs> but you look at some of those reception classrooms, and it's like you, the the kids are they have their choice time 60% of the time or whatever. And they've got sand, they've got the clay, they've got the bikes to ride on, they've got the computers there to play and they've got books to read. It's, it, it, there's a lot to be learned from how early childhood sets up their classrooms because it informs everything that's done there. But of course, the underlying thing is that they're working from play-based learning. And as that gets phased out, unfortunately, for the, the school, um, maybe it turns into forms of inquiry, and it can do, or maybe it's phased out altogether, but that becomes apparent as you walk into a classroom that is rows of desks with, with really not much else in there. So, um, yeah, kudos 
to the early childhood people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them just look like yeah. places where you think like, yeah, if I was a kid, I would want. Yeah. Your, like these of, are. Of all ages. You do, yeah. we, we would take grade five, six kids down to do play, you know, um, play sessions with the younger kids and they loved it. Mm. Of course they do. They're acting as older brothers and sisters and they're also having fun. It gives you, gives you the license, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I'm playing with a six-year-old so I can have a little bit of fun. It's like, you know, so when you're a parent and you're, you're running wild at Disneyland because you've got a, <laughs> a, a six-year-old with you, it's kind of like, <laughs> it gives you license where maybe... Maybe you wouldn't have taken the license before, but that's kind of a, a little different. But it, but it is, it is connected to that kind of layout area, uh, layout kind of um, concept and idea. Um, shall we call it there? Maybe give a little bit of a spiel about uh, what's going to be coming up in the in the next few episodes, and then call it. Sure. So. Yeah. The next few episodes, we're going to shift. If you have been listening to the podcast previously, um, you've noticed our kind of format has been I do a, a monologue or a sort of pseudo TED talk, and then Brendan and I try and pick that apart or go further down some of the rabbit holes with that. Um, the next handful of episodes, sort of this idea of what we're calling our season two, is we're going to move away from this format, the, the very format you heard on this episode, and they're just going to be discussions, interviews, uh, with people from around the world, we, we're kind of coining this term pioneers and hackers. So the pioneers who are out there um, in establishing these development-valued schools and educators and administrators who are hackers, who are bringing about this development value within very conventional systems. So we've kind of talked about all the values up to this point, but for our next handful of episodes... Uh, six, possibly seven episodes now, um, we're going to be having discussions with people who are on the ground doing the work, establishing this development value within schools and getting a sense of what things look like at their school or what things look like within their training. Um, and we've started them. They'll be uh, hitting the airwaves or the podcast waves soon enough. Uh, and it's just fascinating to talk with people on who are really on the cutting edge and the newest iteration of of what school can be looking like and it really just i gotta be honest so far it just seems like in my social media even people who aren't educators share enough videos you know that pop up about criticizing education and how it's so far behind the times and it's not meeting kids needs and there's all these issues and it's almost like a lot of these videos are kind of calling for these really seems unbelievable solutions and it just kind of feels like talking to these people who are in development schools is like yeah no we're we're doing that we're the ones doing this stuff so i'm i'm excited to have these yeah. conversations and share it here on the airwaves yeah it's it's awesome it really is um hopefully by the time we finish this season we're we're gonna have we're gonna have gleaned enough little gems to start setting out more clearly what we think that transformative developmental school could look like to take on the, um, to change or to pull out really the healthy versions of the three values. Cause I will say it again, however, however cynical or negative we may occasionally be or <laughs> often be, um, 
we both believe that all of those three values, the self-discipline, the ambition, and the sensitivity, have a, have a healthy side and something to offer to education. Mm-hmm. And the development uh, or transformative kind of schools and the hackers and pioneers are the people that are acknowledging that too and, and practically showing how we can take explicitly the best and healthiest parts of those three values and build a better and stronger uh, education system and school system for the students. Yeah. And so that's kind of our setup for season two. So starting in two weeks time, we'll begin to have our interviews uh, showing up here available for download as well. I just, I think we're kind of now at the point too with our social media where it's beginning to take on a bit of its own culture as well. You can find us at reinventing education podcast on Facebook. There's a group you can follow us on Twitter. We haven't done much on Instagram yet, but we're warming up to that. Um, What we've started to do is just to share stories from the news that are basically acting as evidence for what we're saying here on the podcast, highlighting some of the issues of ambition, highlighting some of the issues of sensitivity, highlighting the issues of, self-disciplined schools, and even highlighting, you know, these kind of calls for a more development-valued-looking school. And, you know, we're putting articles up online for people to share, give them a read, and offering a quick bit of concise, I guess, commentary from our side about, about how you can use these narratives we're presenting here on this podcast to really better understand and navigate what's going on. Because when we talk about education, when we talk about what's happening in schools in our country, we're really talking about the negotiation between these three or four values that's happening. And if you're not looking at it on that level, it's really confusing to follow and to navigate. Like, well, how do you make sense of this? And well, what these guys are saying makes sense. And what these guys are saying is the opposite. It also kind of makes sense. And so hopefully this narrative we're weaving here is is useful when looking at the news. And and just one last comment. Um, What's touched me the most has been, as our listenership has been growing, the parents who've been reaching out to us with long, detailed, thought-out, heartfelt messages. And I think when you and I started this, we probably just envisioned, oh, well, only teachers will find this interesting. Um, I've been fascinated by the number of people who are not in education, who are parents, who are going, this helps me decode what the hell is going on in my kid's school, or why this thing is an issue for my child or why this is an issue my school is facing. Um, So we've really appreciated that was, I think, unexpected on our part that a lot of what we've been saying actually is speaking to parents. It seems even more than educators. That's cool. And uh, let's keep posting and and feel free people in that community to post also and keep the discussion going. Um, Yeah. Looking forward to, to getting back on with this season and and seeing where it goes. All right. Thank you very much, Brennan. All right. Thank you, Rob. 